Last week, in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul made it clear. God gives all spiritual gifts through the work of the Holy Spirit, and he gives those gifts for the common good of the body of Christ, the church. God himself has empowered the church, and this leaves no room for arrogance or belittling those with other or lesser gifts. The church needs each of its individual members to make up the whole, just like the body needs each of its individual parts to function properly. Although Paul encourages people to desire the higher gifts, he wants them to understand a more excellent way, something that should come before and serve as the guiding principle for the use of all spiritual gifts. As we turn our attention to chapter 13, we see that the more excellent way which serves as the guiding principle for the use of spiritual gifts is love. Good morning. A quick confession as we begin. When I signed up to preach on this date, I did not know that I was signing up for 1 Corinthians 13. And had I known, I probably would have chosen another date. And that's not because I don't like this passage. It's not because it's not a great passage. No, it's a wonderful passage and widely recognized as so. Like if, if the Bible were ever to release a greatest hits album, 1 Corinthians 13 is going on that album. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's that, uh, that good and it's that well known and it's that popular that, that everyone kind of uh, recognizes. I would say actually behind Psalm 23 and John 3.16, this is probably the most recognized scripture in the Bible. People who aren't even Christians uh, know 1 Corinthians 13 when they hear it, and, and that's kind of the problem, actually, is that this is a passage we're all very familiar with, and, and when we come to texts that we're familiar with, it can be difficult, not just for the listener, for the preacher, um, to let the bite of the text still be there for it to hit us where we need to be hit because we already kind of know this because I've heard this a lot. I, I've come up against this passage a lot and, and to make things even more complicated is actually most of us, we've encountered this probably less in Bible studies and in commentaries and more in weddings or in like our grandma's like cross-stitched pillows that she's got in her living rooms, right? And there's nothing wrong with First uh, Corinthians 13 in weddings or on pillows. We, it, it ought to define the way Christians treat each other in marriage. It ought to be something that we have hung up in, in our house so we can remember it and see it. Uh, those things aren't the problem. It's just that uh, we've become so familiar with it in those kinds of setting and context that that First Corinthians 13 is beautiful, but, but kind of in a Hallmark card kind of way. That it's warm and fuzzy. It's sweet, cute. But the background of this text and the passage, the reason for it, is anything but cute. The reason that Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13 is because the Corinthian church had a fascination with the spiritual gifts, and particularly those that we might kind of deem the more supernatural or even just the, the, the more flashy gifts. 
Things like prophecy, where I'm speaking a word from the Lord to you. Things like knowledge, and when Paul talks about knowledge, he doesn't just mean kind of gaining information, but he's talking about like a divine knowledge, something revealed from God to me so I can fathom these different mysteries. Um, Things like works of faith, healing, and the miraculous, and, and particularly, they were dialed in on this one gift, tongues. And next week in chapter 14, we get in a little bit more into what tongues are and what their purpose is, what they do. But for now, let me give you kind of a a succinct definition. Uh, When we talk about speaking in tongues, I believe what Paul is referring to is the spontaneous ability to speak in a language unknown to the speaker. A language that I haven't studied before, a language I don't know. Whether that be other human languages like we see in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost where the disciples and the rest of the church preach to the different people from all these different nations and they all hear them in their own language, they say. Or whether that be some kind of uh, heavenly or angelic language as it's sometimes described. I believe actually both of those things are kind of what Paul is talking about when he speaks about this idea of tongues. And there were a number of people in the Corinthian church who had been given this gift. And what they soon discovered was that this gift was a great way to stand out in the church. It was a great way to be seen and noticed when the body would gather together for worship and they'd be singing songs or they'd be praying and then a person might kind of rise up and begin to speak in tongues. That's something that causes people to notice. Something amazing is going on in there. Look at the, look at the way that guy is connected to the Lord. Look at the way she is in touch with the Holy Spirit and the things that the Spirit is doing in her heart in that moment. And people would be kind of amazed at that. And so the gift of tongues came to be this sort of sign, this demonstration of a greater spirituality in people. The people who spoke in tongues, those are the people who really know God. Those are the people who are really worshiping. Those are the people who are really in touch with the Spirit's movement in their lives. And so it began to divide between the haves and the have-nots. But the problem is Paul had just says in chapter 12, that's not how the gifts work. The gifts are given to each individually as the Spirit chooses. You don't have tongues because you're more mature. You don't have tongues because you're closer to the Spirit. You have it because the Spirit chose to give it to you. And he chooses to give different gifts to different people, Paul says. But the bigger issue is that the Corinthian attitude with their gifts was was going against everything that the gifts were designed to be. It was the exact opposite of what they were meant to do because the, uh, the Corinthians were using these gifts, tongues, to make much of themselves rather than what Paul says, therefore, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, for the common good, for the building up of the church. And rather than the gifts leading to unity and further maturity within the body, it was leading to divisiveness and self-centeredness. And so, 1 Corinthians 13 is no hallmark card. It is an attack on immature, selfish Christianity. And it is a strong warning to us today. Paul actually leads into this text with a line you just saw up on the screen. The very last sentence of chapter 12 goes like this, and I will show you a still still more excellent way. 
In other words, this is how you've been operating. Let me show you how you ought to be operating. Let me show you what your lives ought to look like. Let me show you how the gifts are meant to be practiced and to take place. And with that, he launches us into this chapter. Verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So Paul begins his argument and his attack on this idea by saying, so you're impressed with the flashy gifts, are you? You think those are are pretty cool. Just imagine with me for a second, Paul says. Just imagine that I were able to, to have all of those impressive gifts that you're so enthralled with. And not just have them, but have unlimited ability in them. He keeps using this word all. Imagine that I have the ability, the the gift of knowledge to understand all mysteries, that I have a prophecy that can proclaim all these truths, that I have the kind of faith that could move mountains, that could do amazing, miraculous things, raise the dead, that I could speak in all the tongues of, of men and of angels. And I know Paul says what you're thinking. How great would that be for the church? Think of all the good we could do if we had all of those things in us. Think of the way that people would be drawn to the church if we were living out all these miraculous gifts and these amazing signs in us. And then Paul says, but you need to know something. Do you know what that would be like if you had all of that to an unlimited ability, but there was no love behind it? Here's where you can, you can come up and thank me later because originally my plan in my sermon was to go back there and start banging on a cymbal for like two or three minutes until some of you just started holding your ears and started walking out and all that stuff. But I decided against it, okay? And the only amen I got in my entire first service was when I said I decided against doing that. The reason I decided against doing that is because that's really annoying. And that's kind of Paul's point. Sure, listen. You speak in tongues. Sure, you do incredible, miraculous work. You're going to draw a crowd. Yes, just like banging on a cymbal, that's going to get people's attention. But if there is no love behind it, then it will ultimately amount to nothing. It does not serve the purpose that those gifts were made for. It gets you nowhere. And Paul singles out kind of the miraculous here, the prophecy, the knowledge from God, the tongues, all of those things. But I think he would actually say that, I know he would say that, about every other gift. If you operate with your gift of teaching or your gift of administration or your gift of serving without love at the core and at the root of those things, it's a waste of time. And in fact, not just the gifts. Look what he says in verse 3. If I give away all I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, now people don't know specifically or exactly what Paul is saying when he talks about giving up his body to be burned. But it's widely recognized that what he's talking about is a crazy uh, or a great um, act of devotion or commitment. A willingness even to sacrifice to the nth degree, martyrdom even. Or he talks right before about that, giving away everything I have, which is crazy because this is exactly what Jesus, remember, tells the rich young ruler to do to follow him. You want to follow me, give away everything you have. Sell it all, give the money to the poor, come after me. Paul says, if that young man does Jesus' words exactly without love, it's a waste of time. Even great acts like that or like 
martyrdom, generosity, all of these things are a waste. Love is the foundation for all we do as Christians, including our gifts. And our greatest acts of devotion and the most miraculous signs we could muster up are a waste without it. But this would leave the Corinthians with a question, I imagine. So then, what is love exactly, Paul? When you say love, because love has a wide range of meaning and a broad spectrum that it could fall in there, what exactly do you mean we ought to be like? What, what kind of love are you talking about? Now, here's where Paul has an advantage over us English speakers. Because in English, we basically have one word for love, and it's love. Now, we have other, like, kind of affection is another one, but that's basically just a synonym for love. It doesn't really move the ball any further. But in Greek... The language that Paul's writing, the language that the Corinthians would understand and read, they've got a number of different words for love that capitalize or characterize the specific aspects of that love. So Paul's got a number, at least four, that he can choose from when he's describing this to try and bring clarity. There was the word eros, which was a word to describe romantic love, the love between like a man and a wife, or yeah, a man and his wife, a husband and his wife. And of course, Paul goes, no, that's, that's not the kind of love, though, that I'm talking about here. And so he doesn't use that one. He also had the word philea that he could have used, um, which is this idea of brotherly love. And of course, that's a word that Paul uses a lot to describe other Christians is uh, brothers and sisters. So he could have used that one to describe. It was one of the more commonly used ones. But Paul goes, no, no, that one, even this brotherly love, even this deep friendship love, that, that falls short of the mark. So there's a third one, storge. This is a different kind of love. This is, this is like familial. This is, this is um, comfortable, deep affection, the kind of love between a grandma and her grandkids. That kind of love, that kind of close and familiar love, and, and that maybe would have worked perfectly because Paul loves to describe that we are not just like a bunch of people to come together, but we are a family as the church. But Paul goes, no, even that one is not the word that we're looking for here. He goes to this fourth one, and it's a word that you're probably familiar with if you've grown up in in church at all, like the one Greek word that we all know, agape. Agape is the word that he uses when he describes this. It was the favorite word for love by the Christian church, by the early Christians at that time. Um, But here's where I got a little bit confused growing up. I always thought that the reason the Christians loved this word agape, the reason they used it so much is because it was widely associated with being the purest love, the deepest love. Oh, agape, the kind of love that is boundless and endless and, and has no limits on it. Christian love, good, godly love, but that's not actually the case. Like, I assume that Paul just says agape and the Corinthians automatically know what he's talking about, but that's Not really true. That's not what agape meant in the first century. You want to know the actual definition of agape? Here it is. The official definition in the first century for what it means. Agape means to greet with affection or to receive with friendship. So hug or shake hands or or kiss on the cheek. That's what agape means. Which doesn't sound like what I always thought agape was. Well, good news, there's actually two other definitions for it. Here's the other one, to like. Still not real helpful, huh? Okay, here's the last one. Agape means, third definition, 
love. Love, it's, it's still actually pretty general and pretty broad, and I think maybe that's the point. See, they didn't use the word agape because of its specific meaning. I think perhaps they used it because of its generic meaning, because the other three words already had very specific meanings, and all of those meanings fell short. And so the Christians grabbed the hold of this word agape, and they filled it up with meaning by their teaching and by the way they lived their lives creating a different kind of love that the world could see. Agape came to mean what it did because of texts like the one we're about to read. Verses four through seven. Love, or agape, is patient and kind. Agape does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This, Paul says, is what I mean when I say love. This is what I'm talking about when I describe the attitude you ought to have. Now, he could have used a lot more words to describe it. And if you look through the New Testament, you can see that agape is bigger than even just these words right here. But Paul has specifically chosen the words that he highlights in this text. He specifically selected these words as not-so-subtle digs at the Corinthians and their behavior and their attitude. For example, or actually one of the things you'll notice when you read through is that a lot of the negative words that Paul uses to say love is not this are words that he's been attributing to the Corinthians throughout this letter. So, for example, when he says love is not envious, that word envy is the same word that Paul uses to describe the Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 3. When he says, you know, what? You know how I know you're worldly and you're fleshly? It's because there's jealousy amongst you. And that word jealousy is actually the same Greek word for envy right here. So he says you're jealous, and then he goes into 13 and goes, and that kind of life is not loving. Or he says, um, love does not boast. And if you read in the New Testament, there is no other section of scripture like the first and second Corinthians, those two letters when it comes to talking about boasting. That gets mentioned more there than anywhere else, and that's because the Corinthians loved to boast. They loved to boast in their great spirituality. They loved to boast about their great knowledge. They loved to boast about their giftedness or, or uh, even their financial state. They loved those things. And Paul says, love doesn't do that. Even this word arrogant, literally in the Greek it's not arrogant, is love is not puffed up, which you may remember from 1 Corinthians 8, 1, when Paul says, listen, I know you all have knowledge, but you need to know this, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So he's revealing to them that the way they're living, their whole attitude is the opposite of everything that they are called to be. Now, we don't have time to walk through each one of these words and each one of these descriptions of love. Maybe that would have been a good idea. I'm sure it would be helpful. We don't have time for that today. But, but if I could sum up verses 4 through 7, what Paul is getting at, I think probably the best summary of it comes in the middle of verse 5. This phrase right here. Love does not insist on its own way. In the Greek, it's literally love does not seek its own. Or as the NIV puts it, I like this, love is not self-seeking. And I think that that word right there is key to understanding 
the New Testament writers what they meant when they said agape. It is not self-seeking. It is a love that willingly lays down its own desires and rights. It is a love that seeks the good of the other, even if that comes at great cost to myself. This is a definition that is a direct affront to the Corinthians who are only seeking their own good through the exercise of their gifts. But it's not just an attack on them. It's also an affront to the attitude of many Christians today. This definition rails against the preacher or worship minister who uses his own gifts as a platform to build up his own kingdom. It's a strong warning and rebuke against young ministers who would like to build an identity around the giftedness that they've received. This is also a definition that calls out any believers who refuse to use their gifts at all, who live in community as mere pew-sitters, always consuming but never serving. This is a love that runs completely counter to our modern Western concept of love, something that I fall into when it's easy for me or when you meet my needs but then fall out of when you no longer please me. This love stands in direct contrast to our shallow love that only cares when it's convenient or when I know that you'll return the favor. This love is costly and weighty. It is a love that can only exist in me when I have died to myself. And the Christians didn't use this word agape because it already meant all this. Agape came to mean it because the Christians defined it through their words and through their lives. They became famous for this. Tertullian said, he was an early church father writing in northern Africa, around 200 AD, and he said the pagans looked at the Christians and they would marvel, saying, see how they love each other. Even non-Christian historians will tell you what the church was doing back in that day, the way that the church was loving one another and others around them was something that had not been seen before. They were the kinds of people who were going and and caring for their own poor and also their own sick, but then those outside. They were the kind of people that when plagues would sweep through towns, killing off people by the thousands, and, and people were abandoning their own family in the city because they did not want to get that kind of sickness. The Christians were the ones who stayed and cared for not only their family members, but other people's family members. It was the Christians who were going to the garbage heaps where people would abandon small infants that they considered a nuisance or inconvenience, and the Christians were taking them into their lives and adopting them as their own. Uh, the emperor Julian, he's known as Julian the Apostate, and he um, was famous for not liking Christianity, but he bemoaned the fact that the Christians loved so well. He says this, the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Even the, even the non-Christian emperors recognized there was something different in the way Christians loved. But why? why? Why did Christians define love like this? Of all the different things that they could have taken and attached to agape, why did they uh, define it in this way? Why did they attach it to this costly, self-giving, self-sacrificing kind of love? Well, you already know the answer, don't you? Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 4.10 and 11, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The church did not come to this definition arbitrarily. It came to this definition because it witnessed this kind of love in, the, in, in Jesus on the cross. The very reason the church exists is because this kind of love purchased a people for God through his son, Jesus Christ. This kind of love, church, is our foundation. It is our origin. It is our beginning. This love is not just our beginning. It's also our end. This is what Paul says in verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul wraps up his case against the Corinthians by contrasting the temporary nature of the gifts that they love so much with the eternal, lasting nature of love. He says, listen, recognize that these things you are so enthralled by, these things that you are so caught up in and that you are defining yourself by will not actually be there for most of your existence. Will not last, will not be there for, forever. He goes on so far as to even compare these spiritual gifts with like childish ways that one day we give up as we grow up older. Now it may look, and there's some people who read that whole section on I gave up the childish ways of my past. Some people read that as though Paul is taking shots at speaking in tongues, as though he's dogging it. Tongues, that's just for immature people. The only people who get excited about that are like the young Christians. But when you grow up, when you mature, you don't have to worry about that. Anymore. You don't get so fascinated by that. I, I don't think that's what Paul is saying, actually. Paul will go on in chapter 14 to say, I speak in tongues. I'd love it if you spoke in tongues. I speak in tongues. I don't think Paul has a problem with tongues. He's not attacking that. He's saying something else when he's talking about putting childish ways behind you. So, Probably most of you know that our children's minister and, and, uh, and his wife, Zane and Beth Sutherland, recently had their first kid, and, and they do all their stuff with our kids around here, but their, their first son, Elias, was born just a short time ago, and, and I had uh, the opportunity to talk to Zane like a week after Elias had been born, and to sit down and just kind of see how things are going, and I asked him all those questions, you know, you ask somebody, how's it going, how are you liking parenting, how's he doing, right, and then I asked this question that like you almost always ask somebody with a newborn, how's he sleeping? And more importantly, how are you sleeping, right? And, and I remember I asked him that question, and Zane told me, um, you know, actually, he's sleeping pretty well. 
He said, like, he wakes up a few times in the middle of the night to feed, but then he goes right back to sleep and, like, sleeps the rest of the night. He said, truthfully, he's been super chill. He's been, like, a really easy kid. And I told him, dude, I'm so glad to hear that. Like, I'm really, I'm really happy for you guys that you could start with an easy one. That's so great. And I mostly meant that. Mostly. <laughs> I 95% meant that, all right? But there was this 5% in me, all right? Now, confession time, okay? Love is not envious, okay? I was not being loving, all right? I envied. Because my first child screamed like a banshee for three months. <laughs> Straight, right? Except not, well, actually, no. The first two days, she was wonderful. She was like a little angel baby in the hospital. I think she was just tricking us into bringing her home, okay? But once we brought her home, Ella unleashed the fury on Amy and I for that whole entire night and then for like the rest, the next three months. That's what she did, screaming at us. And there were times I felt like I was losing my mind. And so do you know that idea, the parents, when you talk to somebody who's got a kid and it's like a perfect little child and I'm kind of like sort of happy for you and sort of ticked, right? Um, because, because I didn't get to experience that. But here's the thing. I can look back now and I go, yeah, it was crazy. And I, I thought it would never end. But the truth is I'm not mad at Ella for that. I can't be mad at her. She's doing what babies do. See, see babies don't have like the capacity to communicate like adults do. They don't have the coping mechanisms that we have to take care of ourselves. And so they've got these other tools that have been given to them. They cry or they point, or they reach, or they speak gibberish. They have all these other things that they do, and none of those things are wrong. No, they're good tools that have been given to those kids for that moment. But when they grow up, they put those ways behind them. They don't have to do that stuff anymore. I think that Paul is, is getting at that same idea when he talks about the spiritual gifts. He's not against the Corinthians speaking in tongues. He's not against prophecy or receiving words of knowledge. He calls them gifts for a reason, and he wants them actually to pursue them. He wants them to pray for those things. He wants them to seek those things out and use them, but he keeps them in proper perspective. They are means to a greater end, and that greater end is this, the building up of God's people in love. They are helpful tools that God has given us in an imperfect world, but one day we will outgrow our need for them. One day, Christ will return and we will come to full maturity in his perfect love. Listen, prophecy and knowledge are means by which God reveals glimpses of himself and his character and his will to us in this imperfect world. Those are wonderful things, but Paul says, what need will I have for that on that day that I know as I have been fully known? Tongues is this amazing ability to be able to connect with the Lord and it is edifying to the person who is speaking and to the listeners when it is properly interpreted. It is this edifying thing. But the greatest experience you've ever had in worship, Paul says, is child's play compared to what you will experience when you get to see him face to face. And when we see God face to face in that way, it will transform us and change us in ways that the best preacher or the greatest worship minister, or the most gifted leader could never accomplish for us. And on that day, these gifts, at least these more supernatural, impressive ones, will come to an end, but not love. Love will only grow as we dwell forever with the God who is love. As you and I, as the people of God and the church, 
have the opportunity to join in what C.S. Lewis calls the dance. This active, loving, self-giving relationship that has existed between Father, Son, and Spirit since before time began. This amazing, loving relationship that spilled over into what we now know as creation, that spilled over to give life to dead people like you and I. One day, we will get to join in that perfectly, and we will spend our eternity living in those things. Even, Paul says, this is kind of crazy, there are these Three things that Paul will come back to over and over again in his writings as kind of this triad of Christian virtue, faith, hope, and love. These, these three huge things, but he says love is even greater than the other two because I think what he's getting at is even faith and hope have an expiration date. Faith is an amazing thing, but one day my faith will give way to sight as I look on what I've been trusting for all my life. And one day hope will give way to rejoicing as I experience what I've been waiting for, what I've been looking for, as I live in that with the rest of my life. But love will never end. If you are a Christian, if you are a part of the church, love is your foundation. It is your beginning and your ending. As I said, it is what brought you into life. Behold, how great is the love of the Father that we should be called the children of God. It's what birthed you, and it's also what will culminate when the bridegroom comes back for his bride at the end of time. It is the beginning of your story, and it is the end of your story. The question is whether it will be the middle of your story. The only question for us is how we'll live out the time in between those two things. Whether or not we will be the kind of people who walk in love during our time on earth. The question is, will we use our gifts and our time and our resources for the building up of the church or will we hold them to ourselves? Will we seek the good of our brothers and sisters even when it's not convenient, even when it comes at great cost? Will we use our words to strengthen and encourage one another or will we use them to gossip and tear down? Will we be marked by patience with our children, and by service to our spouse? Will will we be willing to invest in one another's lives through vulnerable, time-consuming friendship? Will we be known as those who love one another and the world around us with a costly, weighty, self-giving love, not because love is the key to our success, Not because love is just the right way to live. Not because love will make everything work better. No, will we love like that because we were first loved by Jesus? That's my hope. And by the way, a little side note, that's also the key to love. We don't muster these things up within us by our our hard work, by white knuckling, by trying our hardest. We grow in this love as we gaze on the love of Jesus for us as the Holy Spirit makes real to us that we are the children of God. And when we see that and when we know know that and experience that, it grows something in us that only the Spirit can do. That's why love is called a fruit of the Spirit. The question, will, will, will we be marked by that fruit in our lives? That is my hope and my prayer for us at Sunnybrook today. Let me pray for that and then we'll be done. Dear Father, it is true. It is true that we by ourselves could never live out the kind of love that you've shown to us, but we desire to. 
And so I pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to do something um, unique and powerful in us that helps us see and comprehend your great love for us in Jesus. For that to be something that is real and experienced and that that will um, foster in us a greater love for you and a greater love for people. That we will be marked by the way we love with the same self-giving love as Jesus and that you would be glorified as we do that, that your church would come to full maturity as we use our gifts to love each other well. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.